Hey, welcome to the podcast. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ&A from The Advocate magazine. Today, I'm talking to Jacob Tobiah, who, as the title says, really changed and expanded and clarified how I think about gender. So you'll hear that conversation. We also talk about their new memoir. It's called Sissy, and it is a big rejection of this assumption and expectation that trans narratives have to solely revolve around a person's trauma. And then as always, if you enjoyed the interview, please subscribe to the podcast and tell all of your friends, literally every single one of them. Helping us spread the word is one of the biggest ways you can help our show grow. Thank you so much to everyone who's done that. All right, let's get to the interview. Without further ado, here's Jacob. Non-binary identities and stories are so new to so many people. Mm. And I think a story like this is important because it just feels so relatable. Well, I mean, that's the point, right? We have this idea that non-binary or gender non-conforming people are like this like, whoa, weird thing that's so different and so out there and like, you know, this enigma uh, not to reference Gaga, but it's <laughs> no, happening. please do. Um, you know, but it's, there's sort of this idea. Yeah. There's this idea that it's like this really strange thing that like no one's going to get right. And you're always going to mess up pronouns and you're always going to like have to walk on eggshells and we're like difficult and whatever. And for me, one of the things that's so important about writing sissy is not just showing that, you know, non-binary and trans folks can be literary voices, but also just kind of making, making the narrative accessible and fun and and taking itself only just seriously enough. Yes. And you also write that most trans narratives revolve around trauma and this is very much a rejection of that. Right. Right. Or at least at least there's this there's this kind of it's it's not a rejection of like sharing trauma, right? I think that yeah. sharing trauma is really beautiful and powerful, but but when you make sh- the sharing of trauma obligatory, that's fucked up, right? Like, it's not cool to say, like, it's not, it's not okay for, um, the, ex- the expected narrative from a trans person to be one of trauma. Yes. Or we can't only experience the trauma only, right? Like right. this, the book works because we get your full story. There is a non-binary person who's the main character. And so then we can hear about the trauma because we're right. hearing about everything else. Right. And that is actually radical in the, this year of our Lord. In this year of our Lord and Gaga. 20 by teen, Lady Gaga. But with trauma-centered stories, I don't know, how did we get there? Is it just that we feel more comfortable, like in terms of like the trans experience? Is it like it's bleed, if it bleeds, it leads, like kind of thing? I mean, I think, I think it's, um, I think it's a combination of factors. I think a lot of the emphasis on trauma narratives, some of it comes from in, internally, right? And that's why I don't want to say that trauma narratives aren't okay or aren't like aren't useful, right? Because so many of us, like, you know, you get a catharsis from sharing your story of trauma in public, right? Because so many trans people have a lot of trauma. I mean, Lord knows I have my own. Yeah. Um, right? Because that's the other thing is refusing to recount my story in the terms of my trauma does not mean that I don't have it, right? It doesn't mean that I don't um, – that, that I haven't had challenging experiences in my life, that these things haven't been difficult at times. Um, but to, but, but what I feel is that like my trauma should be my own and should be mine to tell. You know, I should get to choose how and when I want to share it. Um, and, and also I should get to choose, you know, sort of like whether or not I want to get into some deeper issues 
you know, at, at a given time. So is that something that you had to learn? Yeah, because, you know, I came up before I was in sort of media girl, I came up in like, you know, in the movement, working in sort of the LGBT movement. And and this started, I mean, this started early on, right? Like this this started as early on as as uh, high school, you know, and this is why I say that some of it comes internally from the trans community where, you know, we want to share our trauma because we want to overcome it and sharing and overcoming and sharing and healing are um, are often very related, right? But sharing with intimate friends and sharing with people that with your loved ones and sharing with, you know, your faith community, that is a very different kind of sharing than sharing with the media or sharing in a book, yeah. right? Or sharing at, at on stage at a gala, right? There's a kind of sharing that happens. There's a kind of trauma sharing that happens where the goal, the only goal is to communicate your pain, have it be held by the people that you love and to heal, right? There's a different kind of trauma sharing where other people are trying to use your story and use your trauma for their own political ends. And that is something where as an LGBTQ movement, we are guilty of exploiting the fuck out of people. I feel like every single LGBT gala that I go to, there's at least one person who is brought on stage specifically because they are they are required to recount their story of trauma to get the donors to open up their wallets and feel emotional. Yeah, and it right? involves homelessness, it involves sexual assault, or and it involves like, whatever, it's by the books. Right? Yeah, it involves a, any number of things, but it's generally a trauma that is that is sort of really that is very tactile and discernible, right? Like you, do, what you don't get is a bunch of like trans people coming up on stage at a, at a fundraiser gala telling their story of overcoming depression because the details of overcoming depression are not dramatic. The details of overcoming depression um, are very mundane. You know, they don't have sort of the, the sex appeal of other trauma narratives. And for me, because mental health sort of struggling with that kind of in that sort of way is kind of where a lot of my trauma is from, you know, the way that I experience trauma as a trans person doesn't always lend itself to an easy story or a quick story or the impactful story that other people can use to seem cool or to virtue signal or to raise money or to gain political momentum or whatever they like to do off of my back, you know? And so I think it's just important for trans people. Like, I think it's important for for all queer people, um, for queer people, for trans folks, for everyone in the community. We need to have a better conversation about what it means what it means to share our trauma in the community. And we need to have a better conversation about uh, what it means to give folks full ownership of how and why they share their stories. And so so for me, Sissy kind of stands as a rebellion against that because I don't get into all of it. I get into a lot of it, right? Like, let's not pretend that I don't. But every time I get into it, I I really pushed myself in this book that anytime I was going to tell a challenging story, I would find at least one or two facets of humor in it. And I hope that people don't ignore that when they're writing reviews of the book, right? right. It's a very funny book. Right. And that surprised me and it shouldn't have, right? Because right. I think right. I I even opened this book and was like, oh, where's the trauma? Right. Like, why is that so unexpected? The reading the book actually changed how I think about gender, which surprised me because I thought like really? I had it figured out. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. We're talking about, so crazy. <laughs> how many conversations have we had about gender? <laughs> how great. <laughs> yeah. And because I realized that I was thinking about gender intellectually, it's a construct and it's right. something, it's a binary that 
I feel comfortable opting into and other people don't feel comfortable with that. And I thought that I knew that, mm. but I didn't realize that I was missing this visceral element mm. where reading the book, I could just tell that this was not a intellectual decision that you made. Mm. It was just visceral and in your bones and in your body. Mm. And I didn't realize that I was missing that piece of gender, if that makes sense. Yeah. Wow. I haven't heard it that way before. That's actually really, yeah, that, that, that actually, um, wow, that's really meaningful for me because, you know, that's, yeah, that's, that's the, for me, that's the stakes of this too, is this whole non-binary conversation so often lives in this kind of intellectual place where like you went to college and now you're non-binary, um, right? Like, you know, that, that you took a gender studies class and now you're non-binary, right? Um, and and even the term non-binary suggests kind of a technical and intellectual type thing. To me, non-binary is like the homosexual of terms. Right. You know? Right. In some ways it is. Like there are ways in which I'm kind of like non-binary, maybe we missed the mark on messaging with that one because it's so technical and it literally sounds like a computer. Like I feel like sometimes in, in certain ways it's like, yeah, well, there's like computer code and then there's non-binary people. Yeah. Like there's robots and there's non-binary. <laughs> but but yeah, I, I think there, there's a sense of it being so technical and, it, and there's a sense of it being there's a real stereotype out there that non-binary people are just doing it for attention that we that we embody our gender uh because we want to be edgy and rebellious and for me the stakes of how we treat trans and gender non-conforming and queer and non-binary and gay kids it's not about for me like this this whole thing is not about some some intellectual exercise it's about the fact that children should not have to endure cruelty because of how they express their gender in the world, right? And because those lessons of what a how a boy acts and how a girl acts are like from day one. Day one. It's from like the pink blanket at the hospital. They're before. They're even before day one. They're from day negative. Like like the moment you determine the sex of your of your child, people are people transpose every all these expectations onto a, a, yeah. a kid and their body and their identity. And, and and divorcing the non-binary identity from the body, though, I think occurs because we, we've had this massive hardware upgrade in terms of gender in society. And we now know that gender is different than sex. But when we remove like our body parts from it, that's why I think it goes to the mind mm-hmm. and it becomes intellectual only. Right. And I think that I was able to think that way because that's right. how I experienced gender, right. right? My male privilege allows me not to have to think about it. And I think that that is changing for a lot of oh men. God, hearing you say male privilege makes me giggle. I know, right? But I, I, I have it though. I, guess, I mean, yeah, I guess. You know, but <laughs> what I mean by that is that I was able to not think about my gender. It was the default and it was deferred to. Yes. Like and growing I d- up? Yes. And it wasn't any like weird, you didn't have any like little faggy childhood beautiful shit. Absolutely. But I didn't think of it in terms of gender. Yeah. But I didn't either when I was growing up. Right. But this is the thing. This is like, no, this is the thing. Yeah. No, no, tell me. Like this is, this is one of the things that's most important to me about the book is that I wrote this book as much for trans folks as I did for gay men. And, and I mean, to that I can add, and for cis guys, right? Like, because I, I think one of the reasons why the title is what it is, sissy is a word that's used. That, that transcends the divisions we understand in the LGBTQ community. And this is a touch of an overstatement, but barely. I think that no matter where you fall on the spectrum, no matter how you describe your identity, if you're part of the LGBTQ community and you were assigned male at birth, you were probably called a sissy at some point. 
you know, or at least felt like one. Yeah. And that, and that's and why that was the worst thing you could possibly feel like. Growing right. Up. Right. Right. It was a bit, it was a, it was, it was not okay. It came with a lot of shame and social stigma. Um, and, and that's why, that's why I would push, just want to push back a little bit because I think that most, I think most, maybe not all, but most gay men, even no matter how cis they feel as adults, um, had some level of gender nonconforming childhood because even the experience of being gay in my mind is, is a trait that is gender nonconforming, right? Because heterosexuality and the gender binary, heteronormativity and the gender binary, right? The idea that there are men and women and a man is one thing and a woman is another baked into that is heterosexuality. Yeah. Right. Like by being a man who wants to fuck other men, like you are not conforming to your gender role. And sometimes we forget that. Like we forget that because we spent a lot of time being like, no, 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 like being gay is part of being a man now. And I'm like, that's one strategy for how to fix this. Then like, why are so many of us trying to butch it up so much? Right. Then I'm like, that's where the the anti-femme sentiment comes from in the gay community. Like that's where so much of the residual difficulties come from in the gay community. I mean, if you look at, if you look at this, the statistics around, around like mental health and addiction and, um, you know, and, and, and depression and all that kind of stuff in the gay community, they're not good. Right. And we don't talk about that because part of the PR messaging that we used as a movement to like get our rights and get marriage and whatnot is like, oh, we're happy and fine and just like you. And the reality is like, we're not happy and fine all the time. And we, I think off, I think that there's been this real kind of veil put over um, gay men's experience where it's like, don't talk about the fact that we still have issues. Like, shh, don't talk about the fact that our community is actually still pretty, pretty traumatized and flawed. Like, shh, don't talk about the fact that we're actually can be really terrible to each other. Right. And, and for me, it, what I don't say that to imply that gay men are broken. Gay men are not broken. Gay men are perfect. Um, I say that because I think that what we, the reason we're here. And the reason that we have it, that, that marriage didn't fix everything, the reason that sort of being accepted in mainstream society didn't fix everything is because the only thing that will truly liberate gay men is the same thing that will truly liberate me and non-binary folks and trans folks, which is the gender binary no longer existing. Yes. It's the only thing that will set gay men free too, because gay little kids, even, even if you were like the butchest gay kid who played sports and loved it and like was like just a total butch stud other than the fact that you wanted to suck a dick every now and then, even if that was, even if that was your only trait that made you different from your peers without the gender binary, that wouldn't be an issue. And I'm starting to see the cracks of that, where it's gay men who want to wear heels and like wear right. uh, nail polish. And that's amazing. When I said earlier, though, that I didn't know that I had a gender, I meant that when I was seven and mm. going to my neighbor's house to play with her Barbies, because she had Barbies and I didn't. And I loved that. I didn't qualify that as a boy girl thing. It was just mm. desire and what I liked. And I didn't realize right. until much later that that involved gender. Yeah, but I wouldn't call that male privilege. I would call that... I would call that like be- being in a culture that was good and healthy. As children, like like seven-year-olds, like whether or not a seven-year-old is stigmatized for – like whether or not a male seven-year-old is stigmatized for playing with Barbies is not based on whether or not they have more privilege. Well, it's based on whether or not they're in an affirming space. No, you're right. I, me- I meant male privilege in terms of my life today where like I'm able right. to like walk down an unsafe street and not blink and like, feel okay. 
you know, yeah, if it's okay, dark out. Sure, sure. And, and that to me, I just thought was like life. And I did not realize was like a factor of like my like biology and how I'm perceived. Right. You know? Right. No, and that's I, when I, think I, I totally, privilege. I can totally hold that and, 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 you know, own that because I think there, there are ways in which bodily safety and being a male bodied person in this world certainly correlate. But I also think it's important to name, um, I don't know. I think it's important to complicate male privilege, right? Because, because A, the idea of sort of using the language of privilege to talk about masculinity to me has always seemed a little bit funny. Oh, how so? Only because it's like, oh yeah, it's such a privilege to like do violence to other people and such a privilege to like be made to do violence as a child. And it's such a privilege to like, you know, grow up in masculine culture, which is awful right? Like, it's such a privilege to, like, be pressured to look like the rock since the day you were born. You know, like, there's, I think that masculinity itself is toxic, even and especially for men, right? Like, masculinity hurts men, too. Um, And the way that we understand masculinity, like, hurt, like, I think that most men are hurt by masculinity more than they benefit from it, or at least are hurt by it in some way. Yes, because I, so what you're saying is that when I say male privilege, it kind of, uh, ignores how complicated that is. Right. Our, our, our privilege. And that what a that lived means. experience of privilege in the present doesn't mean that, like, it doesn't mean that, that male children aren't, aren't seriously traumatized by masculinity. I mean, like, think about how fucked up it is that as a culture, you know, your dad, will look at you and tell you like not to cry. Yeah. And not like because you're making a scene on an airplane, right? But just because you're having a human feeling about something and you're told that's not what boys do. Like that is brutality. I can't I can't see it as anything but that. And so I have trouble, you know, when thinking about male privilege as this unqualified thing because I think that the the sooner we can demystify what it means to be made into a man in this culture, the sooner that we can name that as a bad thing that is actually a cycle of abuse, right? Like masculinity, as far as I'm concerned, is a cycle of abuse. And it's one that I managed to get out of, you know, kind of against a lot of historical odds and a lot of cultural odds. But but I feel like we live in a culture where where masculinity is a cycle of abuse. And we have to name that in order to keep moving. I really see that conversation beginning at a large level. Totally. And I totally. think that's terribly exciting. And I think trans folks are leading it. I, and that's what's so exciting about it. I think it's the whirlwind of trans folks and non-binary identities and then all these gender movements with like the Me Too movement are yeah. happening now at the same time. Like that's not a coincidence. They're all bouncing off each other and yeah. helping. And I think that that's part of, I think naming that masculinity and cultures of masculinity are abusive cultures and are and are abusive towards towards boys who are brought into them and men who are brought into them is part of, is, 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 one of the only like it's it's a necessary piece of a feminist future. Yes. Because a world where we can't acknowledge like the way in which masculinity causes pain for men, like if we can't acknowledge that, we can't transform men in our culture. Right? We can't transform what it means to be a male-bodied person if we cannot address the ways in which male-bodied people are abused. And it's funny because it's, you know, in some ways, Sissy is this trans non-binary opus, but in some ways, it's a call to action for something so much greater. Because I'm, you know, I'm, I feel like, I feel like gender non-conforming folks like me 
and and queer children are the canaries in the coal in the coal mine you know like if we're having trouble right it means that that the that the air is foul right it means that everyone's in danger yes you know yeah. um and everyone's being hurt in some way if you know if 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 the little the the faggot in the coal mine um you know is having trouble breathing no seriously yeah isn't that what canaries do is that what canaries do in coal mines like you send a canary down and if it comes back up it's fine it's good air yeah right and if it goes down and then it doesn't come back up it's not it dies right so like Wow, that's actually really, ooh, it's that's, really fucked up. That's actually really fucked up and dark, but honestly true, right? Like the fact that trans women keep dying in our culture is indicative. And the fact that gender nonconforming people keep dying and being brutalized in our culture is indicative of the fact that masculinity is foul. Right. That it's not safe for anybody. That's Damn. Dark as fuck. But, um, wow. going back to these trauma. It's a funny book, but <laughs> this interview ain't. <laughs> Going back to trauma, like these trauma-based narratives around trans people, I often feel like we feel more comfortable covering a trans person when they've died because we know how to process those feelings of a dead body. But we, it gets more complicated when this person is living and we don't fully understand their identity. And also, if we were to care about a living person, that obligates us to act. But for a dead body, we can just be sad and then move on. Yeah, it's this is so this is so fucked up, but it's easier to say oh that's tragic and move on then to say then to really answer the imperative of the trans movement which is we have to transform this entire thing you know this entire thing is broken and we have to fix it it's it's easier to mourn um than to transform sometimes but i also don't want to say that as if we properly mourn any trans people who are murdered yeah or any queer people who are made to feel unsafe. And, and, but that's actually an interesting, you know, when I think about circling back on this conversation around trauma and how we share it, you know, this is something I think about too and, and thought about a lot with kind of the, with the Jesse Smollett, you know, incident, um, and, and with the way that we talk about, um, about hate crimes and, 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 you know, anti trans and anti queer attacks and murders and stuff as, as a media culture and as a society, in order to really talk about them and to talk about what that feels like, we require that something's actually happened to you. And the fucked up part of that is that for most queer and trans people, the the bulk of the trauma is the psychic trauma of not knowing that you're safe, right? Of just waiting for that to happen. Of waiting for someone to stab you. Right. Of feeling like around the corner, there's someone with a baseball bat and never knowing which corner that's going to be. Right. Like that itself is trauma. Right. That is a trauma that I deeply hold. That is a trauma that I navigate every day. But because nothing's quote unquote happened to me, I don't, I don't get to tell that story. I'm not given a space to tell that story. Right. What I'm not saying is that we don't, shouldn't, like we obviously need to pay attention when actual attacks happen and we must care for survivors of violence we must care for survivors of attacks and 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 we and we must honor those who face that kind of violence and face the materialized consequences of of transphobia but we also have to acknowledge and 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 queerphobia and and you know racism and all of those things but we also have to acknowledge that the psychic that that we all are walking around with a with a, with a level of psychic trauma that we don't know how to talk about and that we have to um and that that requires attention and healing in and of itself. So all of that is just to say that, you know, that 
in my life, the ways that I've experienced trauma as a gender nonconforming person, as a non-binary person, as a trans person, often have not have not been kind of the materialized versions that lend themselves to a salacious or or uh, deemed by mass culture to be interesting story, right? For me, it's about the threats that I've been navigating. It's about the feeling of walking around knowing there are landmines, but never being sure when they're going to go off or where they are. And it's been about, and it's been about, you know, the experience of neglect. Yeah. Because that's for, that's the reality for so many trans and queer kids is that, you know, some, some, some people experience abuse, but neglect is a form of abuse, you know? And that's something that has taken a long time for me to start to name because there are, there are ways in which, you know, the only way I could end in the neglect was by, by getting rid of my gender. And that wasn't as much, you know, that, and that came from a lot of different places. You know, it wasn't one person that was terrible. It wasn't one institution that was accountable. It was a complicated mix of things. But yeah, all that is to say that I think there's a lot we're facing as a trans and queer and, and, you know, gender nonconforming community. And, I think it's easy to get really in our heads about all this gender stuff, but where, what I'm interested in, and as an as an author, is I really want to I want us to get in our hearts about it, and that's what Sissy is for me. Is it's a way to sort of get people out of their head on this whole gender non-binary thing, and into their hearts, and then hopefully into their bellies, where they'll be doing lots and lots of belly laughing. That's oh, the goal. I was like, where's this going? And belly. Yeah. <laughs> she, she's she circled it back around. So. I love that. Okay, let me tell you about my grand theory about the word non-binary. Okay, I love it. Okay, so in my work on this podcast, I've seen time and time again that we like words to describe ourselves that sound cool. Mm-hmm. And for gender non-conforming people, I think that gender queer is just a cooler word. The non binary. Gender queer is amazing. And that is why four years ago, had you asked me, I would have told you that gender queer was going to become the go to word. That's what I was using four years ago. That's sort of like, that was my main word. And then it fell out of vogue. And I was like, why? Right. Yeah. And there's no governing body to say, hey, we're using non binary now. Update someone your resume. Call the council. Right. Right. Like, someone call the council. We have to talk about the na- nomenclature. It's just right. It's just like these words become popular in and out. I think people were uncomfortable with the word queer as a part of gender queer because even four years ago we weren't using that widely and i also think it goes to these public figures and how they identify so asia kate dylan is non-binary and when they're on the ellen show talking about being non-binary when they're there's this emmys controversy they're talking about her, uh, them being non-binary great i just misgendered them i'll leave that on it's fine i'm sorry um, it's okay we all fuck up i fuck up pronouns i am a non-binary person and i'm just here to say that sometimes i fuck up pronouns too because i'm an inconsistent incoherent mess and that's part of being human thank you i agree. but i always fix them and that's all that's what it's really about <laughs> i appreciate that yeah, anyway <laughs> and and the emmys use non-binary for asia and that is why more articles use the word non-binary because they're a public figure and we respect what word they choose. But where did Asia Kate Dillon get that word from? They got that from the casting breakdown for Billions, the TV show that said non-binary. This person was like assigned to female at birth, but they identify as non-binary. And Asia looked up that word and they said, oh my God, this is me. This Wait, word is describes that really me. How it happened? That is how they found the word non-binary. I didn't know that story. I know that story because they told it to me on this podcast. Okay, great. So yes. you know that story for real. Like that's <laughs> yeah. the first time that they saw the word. That is where they found that word. So there's a different timeline. Wow, that's, that's cool. 
I agree. I'm drawing a lot of dots that might not exist. I'm right. connecting them, but I, I believe We're this. building a whole conspiracy theory here. Okay, I'm not done yet. There's a different timeline where Brian Koppelman, who created Billions, put out that casting notice where he used gender queer to describe this character, Taylor, on Billions. And then in that timeline, Asia sees the word gender queer, assigned female at birth, goes on looks Ellen, up this talks up, talks about gender queer. He's gender queer, and then gender queer is the it word. Right. There's totally there's totally a world in which genderqueer could have taken primacy over non-binary. And honestly, I put my I feel like when I first came onto the scene, I bet like the horse I bet on was genderqueer. Right. And then I just sort of had to admit at a certain point that like, okay, we've lost. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like we've just we've lost. And is it do I feel sad about that? Like, no, because ultimately, ultimately, I'm like, when it comes to these when it comes to the actual words right and this is something too where i don't i don't think we've gotten the pr just right on it i feel like people are like oh you know like non-binary this word what does it mean and i'm like well the word is important but only so much right like for me the experience of like living in my body as a yeah. gender non-conforming person so how do you so when someone, someone asks right. what does that mean how do you describe it i mean i would be like look gender ain't just two things okay so when people ask me what that means, I, I like, I'm gonna, let, me, let, me, let me mansplain non-binary Oh my God, you. please, yes, <laughs> yes. Mansplaining non-binary. No, I, I'm telling you what I tell people because I want to know if you agree with it and if you identify. Right, and also this is, yeah, this is not mansplaining. This is like <laughs> strategy building because it's like, let's make sure we have our messaging together so that when, when, when the heteros ask, we can be like, <laughs> here's what it is, darlings. Yeah, and people ask me questions a lot and I tell them, ask me the offensive questions to me. You know, don't ask like That's other actually people great that. allyship, right? Thank like you. the best allyship is like is is doing the work on behalf of other people so that they don't like they don't have to do it themselves all the time. Yeah. So when people ask me questions about non-binary, I say they are not man, they're not woman, they're both and neither. Yeah. Is that like, does that ring true to I you? I live for that. That's super cute. I like that because it's concise. It's concise. Yeah. <laughs> I think for me, it's like, yeah, yeah. I feel like concision is what's most important about a definition if you can. Yeah. You know? I also like that in the book, we were seeing how you were finding language to describe yourself before you found the word non-binary. And in high school, you wrote down, I am a gender transcendentalist. Yes. Because I was reading, I was like reading about transcendentalism and like Emerson and Thoreau and shit. And I was just like, cool, I'm going to go to a cabin in the woods of my own making and figure out gender in the absence of everybody. Wait, so tell me that. So when did you find the word non-binary? Well, and so honestly, I don't even fucking remember. And and the reason I don't, and, and I honestly, and like, I don't care too much, right? Like, because for me, I, I found what gender felt good on my body. And the language didn't matter so much. The language was like an afterthought, right? I think that there's this idea out there that like finding the label for yourself, like that it's like, it's like a level, it's like a, it's like a level of Zelda, like a temple in Zelda, you know, like that for anyone who didn't play that game growing up, like go fix your life. Um, okay. Everything you're saying, I agree with. And I think it's so important that you don't need to have this language and doesn't matter and it's constricting. And yet I have to believe that when you're growing up and you're trying to figure out your gender without the language, did you not feel like you were possibly the only person in the world that felt like this? No, I knew I wasn't the only person really? in the world who felt like this. Because this was pre, like, pre, yeah, like, but there social was still, media. Like, David Bowie and shit. You know, I still watched Labyrinth and I was like, okay. 
You know, like there's still, there were definitely, oh. I, I knew that gender was complicated. I never thought that gender wasn't complicated. I just was like, how do I survive in this local group of peers in this gender that I have? Really? But yeah, like, but finding the word non-binary, like, honestly, the word genderqueer, when I first started using it, felt pretty cool. But even then, it wasn't like, you know, some treasure chest that I found where finally I had my gold, you know? It was like, it was like, okay, cool. Yeah, I can use this, whatever. Like, if this helps explain this to other people, sure. Yeah, and which is important. Right, but it was only ever about other people. Like, finding ways to label my gender was only ever about other people being able to understand me better and, and giving other people a shorthand because they seemed to really need that. Yeah. You well, know? Yes. Because for me, the language, what the language does is because people, when, when you walk into a room and you're really gender weird, gender weird, that's a trademark term, trademark Jacob Tobias. When you walk into a room and you're really gender weird, like people kind of panic. Like they have this low key panic response where they're just like, oh God, what are you? What's happening? I don't understand any of this. Oh. You know, and they have all this anxiety about it and these feelings about it. And then like, if you give them a word for it, then they can be like, oh, okay, now I feel better. But, like, for me, I never, I don't need a word for my own gender in order to feel great in it. That's amazing to hear. It's just true. Yeah. Okay, tell me this. I'll tell you anything you want, babes. Oh, thank you so much. How do you see your gender being perceived and treated differently in North Carolina versus big cities like New York City and LA? Well, it's funny because the the stereotype, right, the sort of sense that everyone has is that, like, is that, that it should be radically different. And... There are places where it is, right? But even New York, the idea that New York is better and more comfortable for gender nonconforming people to navigate the world in, um, is, is pretty much a fallacy. Because the thing about New York City is that even if you're like, even if you're walking around Chelsea, which is like, you know, just full of like rich gay men, um, even walking around Chelsea, like there's still everyone there. Yeah. Right. Like all of New York, like, like, like everyone in New York circulates everywhere in New York. So it's not like there's bubbles where there's like only queer people. Even in the neighborhood, there's still a gajillion randos from all over. There's still a bunch of tourists from all over. There's still a bunch of people from all over. And when you walk around down the street as a visibly trans person, they are gawking, they're laughing, they're make, they're like, you know, yelling at you, they're whatever. And not that often, but, but often enough that it's like a thing. But I guess the difference is in my mind that in North Carolina, you might be the only non-binary person these people see that day versus you can find another community of people in a bigger city. Yeah, but I don't think, I mean, I don't know. I feel like my, my experience of living in New York was that the catcalling was more intense than I'd ever experienced in my life. But also, you know, the, the other thing that, the, the, the thing that I think is important to name about other places too is that in North Carolina, living in Raleigh, when I was living in Raleigh, I had, I had a community that was much more finite, right? Like when you go to the same coffee shop every day, there's generally the same kind of people in it, you know, like, and there's only a few coffee shops you go to, right? There's only one or two grocery stores that you really go to, you know, there's only like a few other, like you have your few favorite restaurants. And then like when you're downtown, you know, there's like your few favorite bars, you know, like you have your little collection of places and there's not, and, and you drive to and from them, right? And people get used to you. Oh, because in big cities, you're not making those small communities. Exactly. In big cities, you like in New York City, even if like if there is, let's say that 
you know, someone has to see you four times in order to feel like you're normal in the community, right? In New York City, no one will ever see you four times. So the raw rate of bullshit and ignorance stays constant for your entire life there, right? Because you're running into strangers for the first time every single day of your entire life living in New York City, pretty much. That's a great point. You know, even on your block, you will run into strangers every single day for the rest of your life. So it's like, let's say that one out of one every 1,000 New Yorkers is a piece of shit and a transphobic raging asshole who's going to heckle any trans person they see. You're going to run into like two of those in a given daily commute. Whereas in North Carolina, I would see the same, like, if it takes someone four times to see me to like normalize me, then I'm going to be normal in a lot of different places by the time I've lived there for two or three years. So weighing the scales of what matters in life, does it make a difference that in New York City, you have access to a larger community of trans people? Yeah, that does that does change things. But I think for me, the sort of day-to-day of street harassment in New York was only ever counterbalanced kind of evenly by the access to community. Um, but also like, cause I had queer community in North Carolina. I always, I had queer community since high school, you know, like I was like hanging out with like an intergenerational queer community, like, you know, from the time I came out, like, I feel like I found my people, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't perfect, but, but it wasn't, I mean, it, it wasn't night and day. It really wasn't. And I think that for me, that's, I think it's so important to say and to keep naming because we have this idea that the only place that queer and trans people can truly be happy is major urban centers. And I'm like, look, for me, my truth is not that I can only be happy in major urban centers. My truth is that I can only make television shows and be, uh, you know, a media snob if I live in certain cities. Yeah. So I live there, but it has nothing to do with, or, or very little to do with my gender identity and much, much more to do with the fact that I'm a ham and I want an Emmy. <laughs> um, we're almost out of time, but I don't want to skip over your parents because they were a big part of your book. And mm. I found um, each of them to be uh, meaningful in different ways. Like for example, your mom, you describe as a tomboy, mm-hmm. which is a word that we have created to, love to show that like this gender nonconforming woman is socially acceptable. Mm. You know, is it too like basic to ask if you know if you see a connection between your tomboy mom and your own self in terms of gender no of course i do okay she got me on a gut level like she always got me she like knew you know she was always like oh yeah 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 i get what it feels like to to sort of pull against to strain against your gender that's amazing and and honestly i think that there are so many even even women who identify as cisgender who grew up in it like of an in an older generation they by default get me Because like if you, I mean, if you're, you know, if you were a cisgender woman and grew up in the 70s or the 60s, like, you know what it's like to strain against your gender. You know what it's like to want to want things that you can't have because of your gender. So your father had a more difficult time with your gender. Did your mom help him along since she had this understanding? Yeah, I mean, they figured it out together. But also like, you know, my dad had to have his own process. And I think that, you know, my mom really respected that and was kind of like, you know, we all kind of respected it. I was, and I mean, there were times where I was exasperated by it, but for the most part, I was like, I don't want to, you know, I can't ask you, like, you'd have to figure this out on your own timeline. That's just how people work. And, and, you know, the, and the fact of the matter is that my dad, he took, he took a minute, but, but he came around, you know, and like, and now we have, I, we have a really good relationship. I feel like, 
you know, we we still talk pretty regularly. He's always cute and checks in and like wants to know what's up. And he could not be more proud of me. Does he have a problem with how he comes across? No. Okay. I also want to be clear. Like, it's very clear that you love him deeply. It's not like yes, uh, that and that he loves story. me deeply. Yeah. Right. Like, I tell, I have to tell the parts where things were complicated only because you can't, you can't whitewash that shit, right? Because then, because the 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 better, the more powerful story. If I just say, oh, my dad was fine with my gender, everything's great. Then everyone's like, oh, well, that's cool, but I'm still deeply struggling with my child's gender and I have no fucking clue how to deal with it, right? But if you tell the story of like, you know, my dad didn't respond that well. He didn't really know what was going on. He felt really out of his depth and was super uncomfortable. Then a lot of the dads out there who have gender weird children who don't know how to deal with it will be like, oh my God, that's me. I don't know how to deal with this either. Holy shit. So then when he does come around in the book and I talk about where we are today, they can be like, Oh, maybe I can get there because I recognized myself in in his challenges, right? So, like, it's not you're you're not writing if you pretend as if the path is super easy. You're not writing a good guidebook. You know, you have to talk about this part's really hard. This hike is a level five. You know, plan ahead for this thing. Know that this thing is going to be difficult. You know, because you're not just going to cruise through this whole path. That's not how this works. I just wonder if. Since you care so much about this person's feelings, as you would if he was like wary of like, oh God, Jacob's writing about the parts that I had the most trouble with. Yeah, but we we talked about it, you know? Like Oh, so these were continuations of conversations. So he was not like reading this and being like, Oh God, these are new. <laughs> right. No. And it wasn't like it wasn't like I was like, I wrote a book and I finalized it with my editor and it got printed, you know, fifty thousand times. Here, dad, take a look. It, I, you know, I asked him over and over again. I was like, do you want to read the manuscript? Do you want to check on anything? Like, do you want to make sure that you feel okay with this? I want to make sure that you feel good, you know? And so I, I, you know, I got, I got their consent, you know, like I got their endorsement. And for my mom, that looked like me reading every single word of the book to her over the phone and doing a live audiobook reading. It was beautiful. It was like one of the best weeks of my life. We called, we talked like every night. That's a wild experience. It was incredible. Oh my God. We cried so much and giggled so much. And my mom laughed at a butt sex joke. It was the greatest, single greatest accomplishment of my artistic oh my career. It was making my mother laugh at a, at a joke about butt sex. Oh my God. Um, but yeah, like my, you know, for, and for my dad, what that looked like is him saying, look, I don't need to read everything word, word for word before it comes out because you have your own experience. And you had your own experience of this. I just ask that you be gentle with me. That is an amazingly trusting thing to say. Isn't that incredible? That I think many people would like aspire to have. Right. Like, Isn't that incredible? That. Yes. Like he kicked ass in this wow. process. Like, yeah, my dad, my dad, he like stepped it the fuck up. And I'm just, I'm just like beyond proud of him. That's an amazing place to leave it on. And thank you yeah. for doing this. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And go by Sissy. All right. Big thanks to Jacob for this. If you enjoyed the interview and want to hear more from them, they were on this podcast about 40-ish episodes ago talking specifically about dating and figuring out what it means to be desired. They describe that as the great unfinished business of their gender exploration. So that episode is currently in the 40s. It's called Jacob Tobiah, A Field Guide to Trans Femme Desire. Also, the memoir we talked about is called Sissy, A Coming of Gender Story. And then very quickly, I think it's important, and I want to let you know that GLAAD is currently leading the progressive movement to fight for an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. This would provide explicit protections for women, for LGBTQ people, for communities of color, and for those with disabilities. If you want to join this growing movement or just learn more, go to glad.org slash constitution. 
All right. As always, if you'd be so kind as to help us spread the word about the podcast with a tweet or an Insta story, we'd be eternally grateful. I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1, and I'll see you next week.